You know, it's an exciting time for law schools. We're going into a time where there will be 27 Black women deans at the head of ABA accredited law schools. That is a massive sea change for a profession that does not often reflect society at large. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr. In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us this week for another episode. Today, we talk with Alexia McCaskill, who is the Senior Director for Professional Development at the University of Colorado's Law School. She joined Colorado Law's Career Development Office in 2010 after practicing law for 20 years in Washington, D.C. During her time as a practicing attorney, she represented labor unions and served on the legal staff of a federal political appointee. So today we talk about being a lawyer in Washington, D.C. in the late 1990s as a Black female. We also chat about how university staff are going to grow their leadership skills on campus and about a new mentorship program for first and second year law students at CU. Alexia, looking at your career, you have quite an impressive um, road through the legal field and both as an attorney and now moving into the educational side of things. Where does that passion for law come from? So... I don't know if it's so much a passion for law, even though I definitely believe that law is an amazing instrument and the knowledge and the education are incredible. It's more um, what a legal education and the practice of law provides. It provides the ability to affect change. It enables you to understand the world in a way that you may not otherwise understand it. You know. Um, when we think about so much of what we've seen over the last year and the rules and how things work, having a legal education has given me the ability to understand those unwritten rules. Studying law also gives you what I think of as a very good insight into dynamics of power and systems and how those systems impact different people based upon access, upon exposure, and privilege and and perceptions of status. So in many ways, I'm passionate about the law and a legal education. It's not necessarily the right path for everyone. I, in many ways, um, sort of fell into it. I came from a family that didn't have any lawyers. I never met a lawyer until I went to law school. And that person happened to be one of my professors who didn't teach law classes, who didn't teach pre-law. He taught philosophy and focused specifically on civil disobedience issues um, and just connections. So he was, while he was a very smart, very capable, wildly intelligent person for whom I learned a great deal, 
that exposure is what motivated me to go to law school. What motivated me to go to law school in part was I had a bachelor's of arts degree in psychology from a liberal arts college and didn't really know what I would do with myself and was thinking I could go to graduate school, except the only aspect of working in the field of psychology that appealed to me was behavioral pharmacology. <laughs> but I'm also not wild about science. And I knew I would have to get a lot more science. And people had said to me at various times that law school might be a good option. I like to research and write. But also we had had a speaker come to college. Shirley Chisholm came to college when I was there. And I went to a very small liberal arts college. And what that oftentimes gave us was the ability when very accomplished, very high profile people would come to campus, the ability to sit down with them in small groups and ask questions. And a question was asked of her of what do you do when you're angry about injustice mm. and everything that is um, seems unfair? And her response was, well, you can either be really angry about it or you can do things about it. Hmm. But change can take time, right? And so that sort of thing sort of sticks with you and you start thinking about, okay, I don't know what I want to do, but injustice makes me mad. Bullies make me mad. Also, I have to figure out something I'm going to do. And I was fortunate enough to have options about going to law school when I applied in terms of where I was going to go. I was fortunate in the ways many people aren't. And part of that fortune was um, I received a full three-year all-tuition scholarship at Washington University in St. Louis. I looked at it. It was the late 80s at the time. They had what seemed like a large number of tenure-track women on the faculty. I think it was all of five, but for law school at that time, at the schools I was looking at, that was a big deal. So I decided I would go for a year. And if I hated it, I would leave because I grew up in an area where there were people who had significantly less education than I did already having a four-year degree, but they found jobs. They weren't afraid to work hard. One of my grandfathers only went to school through the eighth grade, and then he went to work in the coal mines, but he made a good living for his family. He worked hard, sent you know his daughters to college, despite that not necessarily really being a thing. And another grandfather who didn't have as much education as the other grandfather. And so my thought was, I can go for a year if I hate it. I won't go back. But I'm, I'll be fine because I have more education than most people I know, and I'm not afraid to work hard. So with that said, I went to law school. I spent that first year still being kind of like on the fence. But I liked the research and writing. I liked the learning. I liked that I was understanding how systems worked and pulling them apart. And then I um, was one of those law students that make my current job in the career office um, difficult, but also ironic. They would ask me what I wanted to do. I could tell them everything I didn't want to do. I had no idea. <laughs> um, and so in some ways, you know, the job I have now is the sweetest, most ironic revenge that could ever happen. Um, but Going through law school, I just took a lot of different classes and figured I would find something I liked, but also I just enjoyed learning. And I was like, it's probably the last time in my life where I just get to have my full-time job to be to learn. And so I would take all kinds of sort of seemingly random classes, everything from feminist jurisprudence to bankruptcy. And then my third year, I took labor law. 
and I love the professor. And I was taking labor law one and bankruptcy at the same time. And they both appealed to me for different reasons. Bankruptcy, especially um, corporate bankruptcies, are these puzzles. You pull the thing apart, then you put it back together again. Labor law appealed to the life that I had come from. I came from three generations of coal miners. So great-grandfather, grandfather, and then my father went to work in the coal mines when he retired from the army and we moved back to where my mother was from. And that was the work that was there. A few teachers in the family as well. So strong union folks. But what it brought to me was I saw the difference having a lawyer and a good lawyer made when the union went out on strike or when there was a grievance or if somebody was going to lose their house. I saw the difference having a lawyer made, especially for the people who are where I was from. I was fortunate. I went to private school. We had more than most. But the town I grew up in was so small and the county were so small, you could live next to a family that had close to nothing. So it was all very connected. And so when I thought about the type of lawyer I wanted to be, labor law was very personal to me, but personal in a way that um, I knew the real world implications of doing that work and doing it well and made that choice. And so for me, becoming a lawyer, it wasn't just about being a lawyer. I mean, I didn't know enough to know that you could go to law school and not practice. So I was going to practice in some way. But the type of lawyer that I ultimately chose to be was informed by knowing the personal and real impact that that could have. And so I fell in love with that aspect of the law and being a lawyer and the ability to make a real impact. And then over the course of the 20 years I practiced, you know, only a, about a year and a half of that was not being spent as a union side labor lawyer because I spent 16 months working for a political appointee, that DC brass ring. I mean, I had downtown parking close to the White House. You kind of can't beat that. But I missed my clients. I missed that advocacy. I missed having to having the ability to be partial in the work I did as opposed to impartial, which was what was required and necessary when I worked for the political appointee in the job that I was in. But I wanted to go back to where I knew that I would be doing work that could make an impact and was fortunate enough to um, sort of fall into a job the second time I applied for it. And it was a job I stayed in for 11 years with um, one of the best lawyers I've ever met as my supervisor, one of literally the best people I've ever met um, who modeled so much for what I came to think of as being a good lawyer. I've been fortunate that I've always had really good bosses and people that I respected a great deal, but from whom I always felt as if I could continue to learn and who gave me the space to do that and to grow. And so I didn't fall in love with the law itself. I fell in love with the potential of the law because I didn't ever plan on going to law school until I was, you know, the end of my junior in college but it's more the ability of what the law enables people to do. But for me, it's, that was my path. But the thing that makes me so excited when I work with and advise students and alumni is when people find their path and what gives them meaning. Um, because I think that's what keeps people in the practice. 
that's what makes them excited to get up and to go to work every day and what makes them good at it. And Alexia, I know we want to talk to you about how you've brought some of that passion to see you uh, specifically in one program that you're, you're working in. Uh, but I have to ask, I have to go back before we talk about current day and say, what was it like living in Washington, D.C.? I'm guessing you left uh, law school in the early 90s. 1990s. 1990. So mm-hmm. you're 1990 in Washington, D.C. as a female attorney working labor law. <laughs> what was that like? And how has that how have you seen this our country and this um, industry change over the last few decades? So it's interesting because when I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1990, you know, it was 1990. It was exciting, but it was a very, in a lot of ways, DC has changed since I've been there. So when I moved there, I didn't actually have a job. I had a very clear idea as to what I wanted to do. And I had a plan, but I didn't have enough um, sophistication or exposure to know that what I wanted to do wasn't the type of thing you just showed up and walked into doing. I didn't know that if you wanted to be in-house counsel at a labor union, maybe you needed to have done some of that work before you showed up, knocked on the door, or that you um, needed to know people. So I didn't know any of those folks. I literally showed up in Washington, D.C., actually in Capitol Heights, Maryland, and lived with family for free while I studied for the bar exam, Um, took the Virginia bar, passed the Virginia bar, wore a suit, the whole nine yards that they make you do as you're taking the bar for two days in Virginia, in the Commonwealth. And um, well, let me back up. Before, uh, when I decided what I wanted to do, I finally went into the career services office, despite them having tried to chase me down in various ways for three years. And I said, this is what I would like to do. I'd like to be a union side lawyer. And how does that happen? And I will never forget what they did for me, which was a kind thing, but also it was the most that they knew how to do for me. And I always keep that in mind when I do my job now. They had received a copy of um, what at the time was called the AFL-CIO Lawyers Coordinating Committee's directory. It was a paper directory of every AFL-CIO affiliated lawyer, law firm or in-house practice um, in the United States. They all had to be members of this if they wanted business from AFL-CIO affiliated unions. And in that book at the time were, you know, nobody had email. So it was phone numbers and it was street addresses. And I did the classic mail merge for every labor union that was in that book and figured I'd be going to DC and wouldn't have any money um, because I was going to be broke and out of school. So I pre-stamped all of the envelopes. And the day after the bar, I dumped them all in the mail. And I would, as I like to refer to it, put on my one sad, very heavy navy blue suit and go talk to anybody who's willing to talk to me in Washington, D.C. in, you know, August, September. And I was working a temporary job just doing data entry at some fancy schmancy law firm that was downtown. And um, I got a phone call saying that um, they one of the labor unions would need an attorney temporarily because they had somebody who was going to have to go on familial leave earlier than expected due to a pregnancy. 
And I went in and we interviewed and they offered me a job for three months and I took it because it was close enough. And then I, you know, the nature of public interest is that the amount of work you have rises to exceed the number of lawyers you have. It's just how it works. And they ultimately um, gates in me for another three months. And then um, I was looking because my time was going to be up and the president had asked of the union had asked my boss at the time whether they thought I would stay for another six months. And because my boss at the time was and continues to be a good and decent person who doesn't just work as, didn't just work as a labor lawyer, but actually lived those values, um, informed the president that they either needed to hire me permanently or he was going to find me another job. And they hired me permanently and backdated everything, including seniority, pension benefits to the day I came through the door and gave me a raise. In addition to you know, the men in the office, there were also three other women attorneys in the office. So I had that experience of having accomplished women attorneys in the office working very close with me that many of my colleagues who went to large firms did not have because of the numbers. Um, and also women who were holding positions as department heads in other aspects of the building and within the labor union because that was a way in which they could progress in their own careers, especially having worked on a shop floor. So I was surrounded by all of those, but it was also still the fact that I was a woman and I was young. And at the time I looked like I was probably about 14. I just looked very young. So oftentimes it would be a piece of, um, I would show up in court and I will never forget this. Um, an attorney once asked me where my boss was. And this was when I'd been practicing about two years and most of the litigation we did was federal appellate stuff. So you put on your court, you go over and you argue the law to the judges. No witnesses, none of that. Um, most lawyers don't get to do that early. I did because I fell into this job and I could write well. And so it was wonderful. But, you know, I would be asked where was my boss by opposing counsel. And I remember once being a little slow on the uptake and thinking to myself, you know, Chuck hasn't come over here with me in like three months. I don't know, like, and then I realized that he didn't think I could possibly be the person presenting the case um, in front of a panel of appellate judges. Whereas for me, that was run of the mill. It's what I did. I liked it and I was good at it. And it didn't occur to me that people's bosses would come to court with them because I worked for people that trusted me. But by the same token, there was an instance where one of our local union presidents once said something to me as I was researching in our library that was less than optimal in terms of the behavior. Um, it was harassing. And um, I told the general counsel at the time, and I will never forget that he stood up for me. He called the vice president who was over this local president's district and made it very clear that until I had an apology, a written apology, that they would no longer be receiving priority for support um, and made it very clear that I was one of the lawyers, I was one of his lawyers, and that I would be treated with the respect that was due. And it would have been a very easy thing for our general counsel to have said nothing because this was a labor union where they had previously fired a general counsel on the convention floor through a membership vote. So, you know, it wasn't as if 
there wasn't some risk in that for him. But that's also the type of thing that makes you very loyal to someone. I'm still in touch with him. He has an amazing Instagram now that he's retired. Um, but also when I was ready to leave that job and felt like I had outgrown it a little bit, he is the person who found me my next job. I had interviewed for a job and I specifically asked the other general counsel I'd interviewed with not to contact my references unless they were serious about extending an offer. I came into work the next morning. He had called my boss because union lawyers, small little pool of general counsels. And my boss said to me, if you're ready to go, that's all well and good. But I've never quite gotten the best vibe from him and gave me the name of two women lawyers who had worked for this other general counsel because he said to me, I don't know what's going on there, but they can't keep women. But call these two people because one of they know everything that goes on in like wow. union side stuff. And I called them and they told me sort of what was going on. They weren't treated um, with the degree of respect that they should have been treated. Um, they weren't harassed or anything of that sort, but they just were never quite given the great assignments, the really interesting work or able to use like their full abilities. And I was like, well, but it is an opportunity so I can still think about it. But I did get an offer from them. I ultimately decided not to go, but my boss came to me at some point when there was um, turnover in administrations, when the first Clinton administration came into office. And my boss was like, this person is being named um, the vice chair of this agency. You'd be perfect for this work. Give me your resume. And so he sent my resume over. And so I ultimately was hired for her staff as one of her counsel. And the thing that I found out later on that he hadn't told me was he had actually advocated for me to be her chief counsel. But she didn't think I was ready yet. But he was like, you can look at all the Harvards, all the Yales, all the Stanfords you want to. But this is what she's been doing for five and a half years. And I've taught her how to do it. And she's good at it. You're not going to find anyone better. So I went to work for her as counsel. And so, you know, it's the difference between sort of a mentor and, an, and a sponsor. He both advocated for me, protected me where his power enabled him to do so. But then when I was ready to move on, instead of sort of holding me back, he launched me in a way that he didn't need to, and in a way that I didn't ask him to do, but he saw that I was ready and helped me move on. And so then I got to go work for a political appointee for 14 months. It was pretty awesome. I have to admit, I have a picture someplace of me in a dress that I really didn't like, but it was a very DC dress, shaking hands with Bill Clinton because I got invited to the White House um, a few times. So, you know, I got, I'm from Kentucky, as I said, so I got to go to the White House when um, the men's basketball team won in that reception they have. And then the Tennessee basketball team won on the women's side. So there are people there from Tennessee because of the vice president at the time. And you go through this receiving line and you get to shake a hand with the president, but you also just get to kind of like wander around parts of the White House when you're waiting for things to start. And you have the ability to like bring your friends to um, see the, the White House decorations for Christmas on the inside. 
before it's open to the public. So, you know, it was special, it was fun, it was, it was challenging, especially as a young lawyer, but I think that it also accelerated my abilities as a lawyer. Being in DC is ground zero. There are a lot of things that you get to do by virtue of being there that you wouldn't get to do anywhere else. I got to, um, we had a legislative attorney on staff in that first job and she was off one day and our head of our legislative department wandered up because they needed somebody to write testimony for our president to give in front of Congress. And I happened to be there that day because my boss wasn't going to do it. And I was like, I don't know how that works. And he's like, here's some samples. Here's the bill. Here's some of the issues. And so I got to draft that. But then, um, you know, she came back, everything got circulated and looked at, and they were like, this is fine. This is good. But because I had drafted that initial piece of his testimony and some other parts of it, they allowed me to run with that. So I got to go up to the Hill to meet with the staffers. I got to sit there the day that he gave his testimony to the subcommittee. So it was exciting because there were all of those opportunities that being in DC afforded me very early on in my career that then, of course, gave me the ability to launch into other things that positioned me well for um, when I decided to quit my job and move to Colorado and saw that the university was looking for um, a director of government and public interest careers for the law school um, to apply for that and to have a resume that spoke to what they were looking for that included DC experience. So it positioned me really well. You know, it put me in a position as being a union lawyer, an in-house union lawyer in DC for those years to know the person who was the um, the head of the labor and employment law section for the ABA, who was willing to be a reference for me. So it was exciting and positioned me in a lot of ways early on as what I refer to as a baby lawyer in ways that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But at the same time, I also spent time in courtrooms where there were not people that looked like me. You know, oftentimes not that many women and only once was there ever another lawyer who was a black person. And I never had a judge that looked like me. And so it's that balance of doing your job and doing it well, but sometimes feeling the pressure to do it maybe even better because there's a feeling of less of a margin for error. And also just being very aware that the less of that margin for error also has the ability to impact outcomes for your client. So in some ways, there's always that drive, that push to be very, um, no typos in the written materials, even though that's always the best course of action. Um, making sure that you knew the law inside and out, especially when you're doing appellate work, but also having those moments where people say things to you that are less optimal, never from the bench, but sometimes from opposing counsel, whether they be male and they're like pushing some things in ways that you're like, do they mean what I think they meant? Or am I just being very sensitive to that? But learning to trust your gut and having that be okay. And then there's also the part of me, you know, that as a young lawyer that did litigation, that did collective bargaining support, just the whole time when I was practicing. I've also participated in competitive sports almost my whole life. I like to win. And I always viewed sort of getting ready for court, getting ready to advise clients, getting ready to provide collective bargaining support, 
training and preparing for that the same way I would train and prepare for, you know, running track when I was in high school and college, playing volleyball when I was in college, and then later on, you know, playing ultimate frisbee, both at league and club levels. There's that piece as well. And, but there's also that piece of balancing that sometimes when you're a woman um, in certain settings, because depending upon how people engage, it may not come over that well, but you also have to make a decision about, am I here to appease you? Or am I here to get the best outcome for my client and the things in which I believe? And so, you know, it, it was exciting. It's something that if I had my way, I think every new lawyer would do it because it's just exciting. And DC is a place where you have so many people from so many different backgrounds. I lived in a neighborhood that was a landing spot for a lot of new immigrants. So you would hear Spanish, you would hear Vietnamese dialogues, and you would all be sort of together. Um, and it was just really great. And I got to live on, you know, on a neighborhood behind the National Zoo. So that's pretty fantastic as well. But it's just, it's an amazing place to be. It was I don't know if I would have been the same lawyer or as good a lawyer for the things that I wanted to do um, if I hadn't started my career and spent most a lot of my, my entire practicing career there. And I don't know if I'd have been positioned as well um, for the job that I had, even though there are other people who've done it extremely well with different backgrounds, but it definitely informs my approach. It also helps me inform and counsel those students who may want to go to Washington, D.C. after they graduate because it, of just how it operates. You have to figure out how to operate. And it's um, like every place else, it's very relationship oriented. Um, I always like to say that when people in D.C. ask you what you do, it's not like in Colorado where it's I bike, I rock climb, I hike. In D.C., it's where do you work and what is your job? What an amazing story. I mean, there's so much good stuff in there. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And, and I, it was fun to go along for the ride. L let me pause real quick. The, you know, this is a podcast about leadership and I want to go mm -hmm. back to your general counsel. What a great, to me, that's a great story of strong leadership. You know, the courage to not only stand up for you, but also to, you know, look out for you as you were, you were planning to maybe leave. And so, you know, as a leadership professor myself, I'm always telling people that that's how we do leadership right, in my opinion. We take care of our people. So I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to just emphasize that. But let's talk about this because I hear themes here. Uh, you know, you seem like somebody that's not afraid to go out and maybe go down a path that is, you know, you, you like, you know, I'm not sure if this is the right path, but I'm going to give it a try. You also talk about being a learner. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll use the term lifelong learner. And so I, I just feel like this is such a perfect um, setup for what you like to do. And that is mentoring students. So tell us a little bit about the mentoring that you do at CU and how do you bring all of this, this great background and wisdom to, to the students? So I run the mentoring program at Colorado Law. Um, we've had mentoring programs in different fits and starts, but when I moved into the role I am now, which is Senior Director for Professional Development, it's a job where I saw a need and um, Dean James Anaya was kind enough to agree with me and my boss and um, let us create that job. And part of the job was to reinvigorate our mentoring program. In that program, we pair first and second year students who apply with um, 
primarily alums, but not only alums of our law school, um, to commit to a year-long relationship in which we ask them to um, connect with each other once or twice a month. And I reach out to those mentors every month, letting them know what's going on in the life of the law school and their students so that they're aware and know that if somebody's dropped off the face for a bit, it may be exams and um, put them together for a year, but provide support to the students so that they can be the best mentees possible and provide support to the mentors so that even if it's not a relationship or a role that they're used to, to help them to grow into that relationship. Um, so it's been wonderful. We've had people who on paper didn't seem like they would match, but because we matched them um, by hand, so to speak, it's enabled us, maybe somebody is you know, a corporate lawyer, but you want to be a public defender, but maybe the thing that you don't realize is you're both first generation. And this person who's the corporate lawyer had to find their way and you're struggling to find your way. So helping to make the best match possible, not just, we don't promise that you're gonna get a job out of it. That's not the point. The point is to help someone, especially a student, develop a sense of their professional identity, what matters to them, and then using that to inform the pathways that they take, but also to build relationships and to have belonging within the broader legal community. Um, so this is our third cycle. I'm actually in the process now of working on those matches um, that will take place starting this June. And so, um, yeah, it's one of the things that I'm proudest of in terms of the work that I do, because I've seen it make a real impact for people in their sense of belonging, um, but also in their desire to give back. Um, nothing makes me happier than somebody who's gone through the program, as a couple of people recently did, who were like, you know, in a couple of years, I want to be somebody's mentor. Um, just that ability to help them feel that they've gained enough of themselves and their identity to be able to provide value to someone else. Oh, I so love listening to the fact that you've brought this into the, the law school mentoring. I think Ron and I are both huge proponents and it's actually how we met is through mentoring um, entrepreneurs in Boulder and Colorado in general. I have to say, I'm not from here either. And um, I have said to many people before, what an amazing community for mentorship and just integrating the university with the community as much as we do. Uh, so it's so great to hear that you're doing that. Um, I'm curious for the law students that are graduating, what advice do you have for them? Uh, they've hopefully, uh, if they're graduating now, they've hopefully gone through your uh, mentorship program or some type of mentoring before leaving uh, the university. But what advice do you have for them uh, now? So unfortunately, we don't not all of our students participate in our mentoring program, but there are different avenues. We have peer mentoring programs at the law school that are amazing. Um, so shout out to the Women's Law Caucus Mentoring Program and, and our Latino law students in particular. Um, the advice I have for them is um, know and trust yourself, um, but also don't compare yourself or your path to that of others. That's the easiest way to lose yourself and especially to wind up in a job or a career that doesn't ring true to you. You know, lawyers are competitive, law school's competitive, and it's really easy to get in a comparison game, but that game can also cause you to lose sight of what you value and what matters to you. Um, and even just the way in which you like to work. 
because especially within the legal profession, there are some things we've traditionally held up as brass rings and um, not wanting that brass ring can cause a lot of people, a lot of law students, anxiety or make them feel as if somehow they are not living up to their potential. Whereas um, just different people have different paths. And also I like to describe it as, um, we like to think of careers as things that are very linear. Um, it's a big squiggly line, but also if you're willing to say yes and open yourself up to opportunities, you never know where you're going to wind up. I never thought I would be doing the job that I'm doing now. I didn't even know it, well, I vaguely knew it was a thing, I didn't know how much of a thing it was, but if I hadn't been willing to say yes and take a risk um, and trust myself and what I had done, I wouldn't be in you know this stage of my career in a job that I love with you know working with students who I'm just amazed to see the people that they become. Um, going back to the mentoring program now, my happiest thing is that students I knew when they were first year law students are now mentors in the program and just bringing that knowledge and that skill and that that proof of my hypothesis of how wonderful they were going to be to bear for someone else. What a great, great answer. There's some things in there that I really like. You know, you don't never know that, you know, the squiggly line. I like that because you never know the path that your life's going to take and just, just go out there and see where it leads because you just never know. You never know. Right. And, and so let, let's, let's turn this a little bit, this conversation to, you obviously, um, for the, for the, uh, maybe the listeners, um, you have a dedication to the equity and inclusion, uh, community, certainly at the, at the school of law, but, but I think in general, what are the biggest challenges that they face, uh, that you see? And also a follow-up question is how can the folks that are in positions of power and privilege, um, increase their allyship or advocacy for these people? So, I mean, I think the first thing I want to acknowledge is that I myself, um, despite, you know, my outward identity or appearance, move through the world with a certain degree of privilege. I have a legal education. Um, you know, I've never had to worry about where I was going to be housed or how I was going to feed myself. And I never had to worry about tuition for either law school or college. Um, I think the biggest challenges I see are that... Um, Historically, decision-making has maybe not had a diversity of voices at the table in the room, sharing their perspectives and their lived experiences. And that it's been a very, in some ways, we've defined what leadership looks like as a very top-down or a certain category of people, as opposed to um, what some people talk about as leading from behind, sort of seeing what the people who are around you and maybe not in positions of power bring to you. And so I think sometimes the what I view as the um, biggest, I don't wanna call it failure because that's blaming and not great language, but is how we have those discussions, how we bring people whose voices have historically not been heard to that discussion. Um, but at the same time, doing it in a way where everyone can hear and is willing to hear without um, without kind of without bringing shame, without bringing shame. Um, and so with that, for the second part of your question is the piece of, we all have to learn to listen, especially I think those in power and those with historically held power. Um, we have to learn how to 
listen in a way that's humble to the experiences of others and also be willing to sit in our discomfort. And, and maybe sometimes we don't put that discomfort aside because I think discomfort is where you grow, right? Like making a mistake is where you grow. But truly hearing what is said and to the extent that we can, um, divorcing ego from what people are sharing with us, what they're saying. And um, so I participated in the university perspective program. And one of the things that um, Chancellor Stefano said in that program, when we were asking about what it's like to lead at this time, both in terms of COVID and social change and racial reckoning. And he said that one of the things that he's had to learn how to do over his time is instead of viewing what may seem like criticism as a critique, viewing it or thinking of it as an opportunity for a different approach or a suggestion for a different approach. And so when you ask sort of how the work that we can do with diversity and equity and inclusion in that way, that's sort of how I think about it is this willingness to um, sort of step outside of your initial reaction and then look and listen to see you know, what's valid or what you may not have considered because of the perspective from which you come in the way in which you exist and then making space for those voices and learning from them at the table because it's one thing to be diverse. It's a different thing to be inclusive. And I've noticed in some pockets, they're also starting to talk about belonging so that it's not just, well, you're here and we're taking, including your decision. It's also about an approach that makes people truly feel as if they belong and they have a stake and a voice and are not just being listened to, but actually incorporated with growth and in a way that that helps them belong and feel invested. So that's um, sort of the answer and the perspective that I see, because I think it's an exciting time, but it's also a time where, you know, we're all trying to learn and we'll make mistakes. But if you don't make mistakes, um, and grow, of course, you need to acknowledge those mistakes. You can't just blow past them. But I think it's, um, you know, I think it's just a really amazing opportunity that's being presented. Great advice for us all, I believe. Yeah, I love this additional level, like upping diversity and inclusion to include now belonging. I haven't heard that before. Um, and I love that concept because you're right. It's the next evolution to inclusion. Um, and this is going to take some some additional training for leaders, I think, because uh, Dia and I has been taking a lot of training, but I think now teaching leaders how to make people feel a sense of belonging is going to take a little bit more. And I'm curious, you did mention the CU Perspectives program that uh, is available on campus and you went through the program. Mm -hmm. Can you take a quick minute just to talk to us about that? That's, uh, you know, a program on campus that's deepening the leadership capacity of staff. And I don't know if it's open to everyone, but could you tell us how people might be able to get involved and what your experience was? So it's open to, it's called the University Perspective Program. It's open to staff. Um, if you just literally go to CU's website and Google um, leadership training or professional development, it will pop up or reach out to the good folks in the human resources department um, because they facilitated it. And Lisa Nelson and Alyssa Willett just did a really great job um, facilitating the program. So it's a 
program for the entire academic year. So I did 2020 through 2021. And in the context of the program, you get to meet with various leaders on both the CU campus, as well as um, the leadership teams at CU Denver, Anschutz campus, and um, UCCS. And you get to hear from them about their philosophy of leadership and different challenges, but you also have the chance to engage and ask questions in a way that um, is very free flowing, very informal that you would normally not have. The cycle that I went through was um, virtual because of COVID, but it also provided us with a really great opportunity to um, speak with them hear what it's like to lead in a crisis, but also to hear what they were looking forward to on the other side. Um, but it's especially wonderful because it brings together staff from different parts of campus. So I got to meet people who do communications, people who are in engineering, um, someone who works for the museum on campus. So people that otherwise being tucked away over at the law school on the far edge of campus, I would never have a reason to encounter. So it deepened my um, community within the university, but it also really gave me a chance to hear from people who lead at a very high level about their philosophy, about their challenges. And the thing I appreciated the most was um, the vulnerability that they were willing to give. And um, just that they also took the time in what is an incredibly challenging year. Um, we got to meet with the folks that make up the university's COVID response team. And we know that they're busy, um, but they made the time. Um, but also it was just interesting to hear how many of them, it just an opportunity presented themselves and they were like, I may not have done this before, but I'm going to run with it and see what happens. And um, yeah, I would recommend it to anyone who had the opportunity because it just taught me a great deal. But it also, I think makes me better at my job because I can bring back a lot of what I learned to the law school. Um, and so that was just, that was my pandemic plus because I decided to invest in my own professional development the way I'm telling students that they always shouldn't. I couldn't make excuses because I'm in my living room. What else am I doing? That, that you know, stories like that always make me feel better as a human being, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's nice to hear people doing that, coming together, and certainly in times of, let's be honest, during times of crisis and coming together and supporting each other. So that's a wonderful message. Let's put a bow on this wonderful conversation that we've had today. And I appreciate, uh, Alexia, for you spending time not only with Tara and I, but also our listeners. Let's go to our signature question. What's on the frontier of leadership in your mind? Is there anything out there that maybe is on the cutting edge? Um, or maybe another way to put it is, how can we do better as we move forward into the future of leadership? So I think um, what's on the horizon is I think leadership is going to be become more compassionate. Um, partially because, right, with COVID, we've all had to take a beat and to realize that there are times when even those people who are trying to do their absolute best just may need a moment. So I think it's going to be more compassionate. I think it's also going to be more diverse in terms of identity and in terms of lived experiences. You know, it's an exciting time for law schools. We're um, going into a time where there will be 27 my understanding, 27 Black women deans um, at the head of um, ABA accredited law schools. That is a massive sea change for a profession that does not often um, 
reflect society at large. So I think it'll be more compassionate. I think it will be more inclusive. I think it will also be more questioning of tradition in terms of do we need to continue to do things the way we've always done them? Or is there a better and different way to approach things? So that's sort of what I see on the horizon. Um, and I'm excited about it. Um, I think it's going to require all of us to get our games up a little bit, approach things differently, but that's sort of um, where I see things going, or at least where I hope things are going. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.